1998, the Coen brothers broke even at the box office with a little noir spoof about early 90s LA called The Big Lebowski. But as time went on, the movie's reputation began to grow. With snappy, quotable dialogue, a convoluted plot, and memorable performances at every turn, this barely marketable comedy became a cult classic. How could anyone have ignored characters like the Dude, Walter, and the Jesus? Both me and my distinguished guests have all seen this movie at least a dozen times, but we thought we'd view it once more under the critical gaze of this podcast. So mix yourself up a white Russian, and please don't call it a Caucasian. It's time for episode 85 of Toasting the Classics, The Big Lebowski. Welcome to Toasting the Classics, the podcast where we take something that people call a classic and we talk about it while we drink something inspired by the classic. In this case, extremely, extremely literally inspired by the classic. I've got uh, my guest host on again. Guys, introduce yourselves. Bill Hodges. I'm Chris Gregg. And I am, as always, Dave MacArthur. We had a spontaneous conversation the last time when we did 48 hours and drank black Russians that we should also use the other half of our coffee liqueur and do white Russians. And as I think most of you out there know, that led to covering The Big Lebowski, 1998 film by the Coen brothers. What history do you guys have with this film? Wait, I watched Beverly Hills Cop 2. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we should have. That's funny. I, I also that. watched Beverly Hills Cop. I'm trying to think of something else that sounds like The Big Lebowski. Probably would be a an adult film. Yeah, so, Gutter Balls. Gutter Balls, right. Was the, is that the one with Woody, Woody Harrelson? No, that's Kingpin. Gutter Kingpin. Balls is the title of his dream sequence, the dude starring in Gutter Balls during this movie. And I don't remember what the actual adult film referred to diegetically in this movie was. I don't think they ever actually dropped a name for it. No, they they totally did. They oh, really? Totally oh. Did. Yes. I, I, I'm drawing a blank on it, though. It, it goes across the screen and everything. Oh, right. The credits go. I've seen this movie, yeah, maybe as much as... 10, 11, maybe a dozen times over the course of the years. It's, it's not one of my obsessive watch it over and over movies. There's movies that I've seen quite a few more times than 10 times, like back in the day when I would have DVDs just playing all day while I was doing my homework and things like that. But I have seen it a bunch of times. Have you guys? Yes. Yes. I saw it in the theater when it first came out, even actually. I, I did too. I don't think I saw it in the theater when it first came out, but I definitely have watched it several times. And it's it, a what, fun experience to see it in the theater and because comedies are just always better with other people when you get those laughs going. What year was Fargo? Is this this is post Fargo, right? Yeah, Fargo's I want to say 95, 96. Somewhere yeah, so there. I think I was yeah. bought in on Coen Brothers by the time this one came out. I was like, I'm just going to go see whatever they do. Like, every time they have a movie, I'll watch it. I didn't love this one the first time I saw it. I liked it, but it wasn't one of my favorite. It wasn't like when I saw Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I was just like, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. I will watch this movie a hundred times. I love everything about this movie. And the same with Fargo, actually. I really liked that the first time I saw it. This one didn't quite hit me right. And uh has to do, I think, I, th I think something to do with the comedy of it. The movie that always comes to mind for me with this is Napoleon Dynamite, which I might have watched two thirds of the way through the movie before it clicked what was going on in the movie comedically. And all of a sudden it was the funniest movie I'd ever seen. And then I watched it again and it's really funny when you watch it over it. And that's what this one's like. You watch it over again and you get what the actors are doing and why they're talking the way they are. And it's just it's just funnier once once you once it clicks. I guess I can see that. I, I never really liked Napoleon Dynamite all that much. I, I guess I kind of get what they're going for. But yeah. this one has this bleak, absurdist humor that just 
hits me the right way every time. Yeah, I kept thinking about the difference between this and Inside Lewin Davis. And I was thinking if you if you created a scale of silliness with like Dumb and Dumber at a one and some Meryl Streep tearjerker at 10, this one is like 4.8. And Inside Lewin Davis is farther into the fives. You know, it's like it's yeah. like too serious. So I, I don't know, man. I would say this one's closer to a two or a three because there's a lot of silly, stupid crap that happens. There's a lot of silly stuff that happens, but I guess what I'm saying is it's played straight. Everybody's just play. It's not like a comedy. Nobody's like, nobody's like. I would agree with you if not for the dream sequences. Okay, those are ridiculous. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But they're dream sequences. He he goes all in. Yeah, he's definitely goofing around. The part where he gets himself sucked into the thumb hole of the bowling ball and the look on his face when he's afraid of the bowling ball is the goofy he's playing acting differently in that scene i noticed it when i was watching it and i, I didn't understand that, why he was dressed up like a plumber i think it's because it's a prototypical archetype for uh, adult movies oh no it's not just an archetype it's what the guy's wearing at the beginning of the when they show the adult film with bunny's adult film he oh, shows he's, he's wearing the same he's the cable thing as, he's the cable guy oh, he's the repair wearing. guy there's something wrong mit mit dein television mit dein cable. <laughs> Connect. I hadn't connected those dots early in the movie though. The the first time we're introduced to the dude, the lead character, uh, Jeff uh -huh. Bridges, he gets off these three rapid fire, quick, smart ass comments that I don't think are really played seriously. It, it's establishing his character. You know, it's the you talking about the comebacks he has while he's having his head dumped into the toilet. And after, yes, you know, I, I didn't, I don't know where the money, I don't know where the money is, you know, it's well, down me, somewhere. Yeah, I bet it's hold down. on, hold on, give me, give me one more try here. I think maybe yeah, it's, I think it's, it's down, down there, there somewhere. Yeah, no, those are good. I thought those were good. They seem straight. Yeah, at least I'm housebroken one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they seem to be played straight. They seem to just like establish that despite all appearances, he's actually not that dumb. He's actually kind of a witty guy. Like I like, I like that part of the characters. There's a little bit of an edge. He's not just your your prototypical stoner character. There's more going on there under the surface with this character. He's a, he's, a, he's more clever than that. He's funny you know? because at times there is more, and at times... At times, he's driving down the street, lighting a joint, setting his pants on fire, and then using the beer he's also drinking to put the fire out the on fire his crop. That's, that's pretty ridiculous. And running into a dumpster, yeah. Yes, and driving into a dumpster, right. So he's not, not entirely uh, competent. And, that was uh, great cinematically, by the way. The, the, yes, that's very funny. The running into the car, the car into the dumpster. That's so I wanted to do this later, but what are your like top laugh lines in this movie? So it's one of these things where it depends on how many times I've seen it. Because one of the things I laughed out loud at this and what reminded me of the way that Oh Brother Where Art Thou is written is the one line where he's like, say what you will about the tenets of, na of national socialism, but at least it's an ethos. Like that got an, a laugh out loud from me. And I knew it's coming. Yeah. It's just like, it just made me laugh because I just love the way he delivers that line. It's just, that's really funny to me. Just the concept of phrasing that that way. He's yeah, like, the car thing we just talked about is a big one for me, as is the part where Jackie Treehorn draws on the notepad. Yeah. Then yeah. he comes over and he, he figures yeah. out. Because that's 100% something that would happen in a noir. Somebody would do that copying the notepad trick and find out like the phone number. I think that might, happen in LA Confidential. Oh, yeah, I, might, I think for sure it does. Which... Or maybe I might be Mandelaing it, but anyway, it's it's in something. I realized that this time. I was like, oh, this is a spoof. It's like a spoof of one of those detective noir movies from way back, going way back in the day. They actually said directly it's supposed to be sort of like a Raymond Chandler novel. Do you want to do some kind of a synopsis? It sounds like... Synopsis. But so far, what we've done is nothing like a synopsis. So basically... This is the story of a 
ne'er do well essentially former stoner you know so for, lack, for lack of a better yeah yeah not really former burnt out ex-hippie who lives in la and uh through a mix-up in the names it sounds really ridiculous it's a really ridiculous plot mcguffin basically but some guys break in thinking he's somebody else and pee on his rug so he decides to go talk to the rich guy who has the same name as him and try to get the rug paid for which makes no sense i don't understand that at all like because that's what john goodman told him to do that's what walter john, was like well john, walter's like you got to do this right it's a theme in the movie that if walter says to do something or gets involved in something don't do it like but basically through a series of hijinks he gets caught up in this sort of loosely framed confusing plot with a fake kidnapping and some nihilist german terrorists and money uh, drop that goes bad the car yeah gets money drop that goes bad all the elements that would be in like a legitimate straight, you know, noir mystery wrapped up into just a whole bunch of ridiculous characters. And it's very much like the Coen brothers. Nobody walks onto screen without playing it to the hilt and like doing something with the character that they're given. You know, like John Turturro plays the guy who bowls next to them and just steals the scene for like five minutes of the movie, just being yeah. the Jesus. Philip Seymour Hoffman like fumbling through being the awkward nebbish lick spittle yeah he's yeah he's, he's really role. funny doing that part like he's really like just just acting bizarre it's almost the same character he plays in boogie nights in a lot of ways he has the same kind of uh nervousness to him except that in boogie nights he made the crazy choice to always have the character wear shirts that are like sized for a for an eight-year-old yes <laughs> it's really funny when you see it Bill's and in this one, he's professionally developed. And anytime someone says something inappropriate, he has this nervous laugh that makes yes. me crack out. Yes. Yeah, he's very good at that. That was very. That's very good in this movie. Uh, Tara Reed has uh, bit herself. Where are we on Tara Reed? Was she famous for? Because to me, she seemed like a huge pop culture icon for like a couple years. Was it just American Pie? Pretty much, I think. Yeah. It's kind of like I. I told you guys the other, that one time we went to a show and we, we saw Heather Graham there. And I was telling people and like nobody remembered who Heather Graham was. And I was like, was Heather Graham not as big of a star as I remember her being? Like, I thought she was huge. She Tara was a Reed, big star for a little while, but for like two or three years, I guess. Yeah, it's like largely paid a bit. Um, Roller Girl is definitely yeah, Roller Girl's number one. one yeah. But Ooh. this is a really difficult movie to summarize because a lot of stuff happens, but not much plot really happens yeah. in a lot of I ways. I think I'm pretty much done with the synopsis. I mean, basically, at the end of the film, there's a sort of confrontation with the Germans that leads leads to some tragedy at the end of the which, film. Which is yeah. funny in a little bit because it's, it's ultimately a meaningless confrontation because the kidnapped person has right. already come back. There is nothing to gain except pocket change in right. the fight they ultimately have. So Donnie, who has been the in their friend group, but the guy that's constantly dumped on winds up having a heart attack and dying for no reason. But I thought so, so that kind of follows. I believe, I don't even know if this counts as my um, overwrought theory of the week, but I believe what's going on is that this a lot of the story, and there's a lot of different things going on, there's a lot of just ridiculousness going on and funny Americana and, and character acting. But in in the sense that if there's any theme or a comment on anything in this movie, I think what runs through it is the consequences of violence and the consequences of using violence when there might be other options to resolve conflict, and especially Walter constantly doing that. And that is set against the backdrop of the first Gulf War. I'm not really sure for me whether that kind of lands, because 
when I look at the first Gulf War, it's like that was a pretty judicious use of force. If you think about it, it was sort of like meeting the objectives and it wasn't like the second Gulf War where you're like, why did that happen? Why did we do that? What was the, what was the, why, why are we using violence at all in that situation? Does that make sense to you guys? Or am I just out in left field? I think I could see it pretty well as a criticism of the Gulf War where a lot happens. Borders don't actually change. Some people die, but ultimately you, you go back to where you started and. Well, you go back to where you started before the Iraqis invaded Kuwait. Yeah. That, well, that, but that was the, that's what I mean. That was the objective. It was accomplished and we didn't, you know, we did leave troops there to some degree, which led to more problems, but that would be, that would be the problems that led to is having troops in the Middle East. That's a whole different story, but. Anyway, I sort of thought that's where they were going with that. I think sometimes the Coen brothers drop the ball a little bit on their overall statement with their films, and they just nail visual detail, character detail, dialogue. Like, it's a really richly textured experience watching one of their movies. But sometimes I'm like, what are, what are you trying to say here? Like, they were talking about how Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is based on the Odyssey, but neither of them had actually read the Odyssey, and it sort of didn't make any sense if you know anything about the Odyssey. That I don't think is one of their stronger ones, personally. I love that movie, but it's not because of their themes. It's not because of that part of it. I, I just like everybody's... George Clooney's hilarious in it. Just the the yes. way everybody talks is hilarious. John Turturro's hilarious in it. All, all three of the convicts that escaped mm -hmm. are, are tremendous. I actually don't know the Buster Scruggs guy's name. But, but you're right. It, everyone that walks on screen has their own individual character ticks that make the characters stand out and be interesting in a scene. Even if they only have one scene... Even if it's just Lebowski's landlord, who's this nebbish guy, oh, yeah. 10 days after they were due, you know, Professor Lupin, who is sitting there with Maud. I didn't remember who the actor's name is, like David Newlis or something. Is uh, that right? David Thules, uh, I believe, who's who's in several other Coen Brothers stuff, including Fargo season three, I want to say. Oh, that could be. But it was it was Lupin I was thinking of. I went and looked it up. I was like, oh, that's right. I knew I knew I knew him from something. But yeah, he's a really funny personality in that scene. He's sitting there and he keeps giggling and he's talking on the phone. And then she's like yelling in, in Spanish or whatever on the phone. And they're and it's like, what? Why are why are these choices being made by, by these actors? But it's, it's great. It works really well. Who plays uh, the adult film director? I don't understand who these characters are in terms of the plot. Like Julianne Moore's character comes kind of comes out of nowhere. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And the same with the porn director guy. It's it's a little bit like if if you watch L.A. Confidential or one of those films, it's very Byzantine. And I don't really know that the plot is the point. Jackie Treehorn, I think, is the name. Jackie of Treehorn the name. Is, the, is the guy I was trying to think of. And I looked up that actor. I, I didn't really know him from other things. But he's very familiar. Did we talk about what we're eating, what we're drinking? We did not. Bill, what are we drinking? We're drinking a, a white Russian. Why? Why would we drink that? Well, he drinks a few of those. He also yeah, and and you know this was actually a surprise for me. He that he called it referred to it as the white a white Russian, rather than uh, more often I will say than, he does call it a Caucasian several times, but but not as often as he calls it a white Russian. No, not as often as it says white Russian. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about putting in the you know I put a little subtitle to the episodes i was thinking of calling it like you know just dis discussing a, the big lebowski with three caucasians or something like that but i just hate that word that word is so the history of that word is really gross yeah and uh i just yeah not not a fan so how about the end of the movie after donnie dies there's a smash cut to the funeral parlor there's a joke there that doesn't land with me because we don't have that grocery store in this area so ralph's, ralph's. yeah <laughs> well i don't know if ralph's exists 
It but does. They refer- it does. Okay, I didn't know that because I, I got what they were talking about because at the beginning he's in Ralph's and then his only form of ID is a Ralph's discount card. <laughs> and then he's like, is there a Ralph's in the neighborhood? And I was like, that's the grocery store. I know what they're talking about there. So yeah, but the joke is that they don't want to pay $180 for a the most modestly priced urn that the funeral parlor offers. So they go across the street and dump out a tin of chock full of nuts or something. and put Those Folgers. Yeah, Folgers, okay, awesome. there you go. Yeah, so they get that and go to dump poor Donnie into the Pacific Ocean and uh, just spray it all over themselves. And it's funny because that's pretty, you know, they're sitting there in the funeral parlor and, they, and they're arguing about the price of the urn and that's played pretty comedically. And then they go to dump it and it dumps all over them and that's played pretty comedically. And then suddenly the only earnest moment in the film is like the two of them have sort of an awkward hug. Yeah. I actually had like a little bit of like a, like a, like a, like a pang for a second. I was like, oh, that's so sweet. Like the two of them. All of a sudden. It's amazing how they can bring it around from this overplayed comedy into some actual real human emotion. Yeah. There, the emotional shift was very, um, interesting to me i like that i I don't like straight just comedy i'm not gonna love a movie if it's just funny the whole time i need a little bit of that sincerity thrown in like i'm trying to think of what my favorite comedies are that are like that but there's definitely a few oh big you know the movie big i don't even know if going back if i watch that i don't even know if it's funny is really why i watch it it's really just kind of there's other things going on that i enjoy more about the movie but anyway i don't really think of it as a comedy I mean, it, yeah, I think it was billed as a comedy. And I remember laughing a bunch of times when I first saw it. But yeah, there's something else going on. It's it's kind of genre defying in a lot of ways, if you think about it. It's sort of like it's a comedy. Yeah, I think it's really but it's... as a comedy because Tom Hanks is in it. Another quick question. I was keeping track this time. How many scenes do you think they have in the bowling alley? Separate scenes. Separate scenes in the bowling alley. Well, I would just be spitballing. It's 10, maybe six to 10, somewhere in that range. Bill? That's all right. Yeah. Maybe. Okay, it's actually seven. It's less than okay. I thought. Yeah. It was keeping pretty pretty uh, clear track of it this time. And you never actually see the dude bowl. It's always Donnie. We don't see Walter bowl either. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's, or it's the other people, not on their team. Right. And Donnie, Donnie gets a strike every time until he almost dies, and he gets a spare, and he sits, yeah. and he sits down, and he kind of like hold his, holds his arm, which is a, a warning sign for having yeah, a your left arm. Was it his left arm? I can't remember the framing it wouldn't surprise me if it was that's interesting what do you mean when he almost dies is there some other time when he almost dies when donnie almost dies Sorry, when he's about to die oh, no. oh 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 oh! i see what you mean when he's when he's almost at the point of dying you know of all the actors in the movie steve buscemi probably isn't doing that much considering who steve buscemi is and how good he's capable of being in things he's not a huge entity in this yeah his role is kind of be, to be kicked a lot which happens a lot. Yeah, Goodman's, and I can't character, even, Goodman's character just... I can't even quote what he says all the time. It's got a, it's got an F word in it. Did you know that this movie is 29th of all time for the number of uses of the F word? Is that why Sam Elliott is like... Why do you use so many swear words? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like you, man, but you just use too many swear words. I like her style. That's too many let me hear. Let me hear you guys Sam Elliott. Does anybody do a good Sam Elliott? He's pretty uh, impression... Not impressionable. That's the wrong word. <laughs> <laughs> Mimicable. Pardon me. Do you mind if I have a sarsaparilla? You got some of them good sarsaparilla. What's your best sarsaparilla? Yeah, no, I don't think any of us is quite nailing the Sam Elliott, but he's no, he's, a, he's a good impression to have in the in the bank. How many times do you think the F word gets used? What what would your guess be? I would say around seventy. Okay, Bill. I was gonna say like forty five, six, fifty. Two hundred and eighty one. <laughs> 
I mean, it probably gets used 20 times alone in that scene where John Goodman goes out and bashes that guy's car up with the with yeah, the yeah. bar. Oh, that's right. This is what happens when you blank a stranger. In the blank, yeah. That's right. Yeah, that'll add up. And every time he tells Donnie to shut the up. Yes. That happens yeah. quite a bit. Yeah, it must add up. I, di- I didn't count it myself, by the way. I'm taking somebody else's word for it. Something. Yeah, it's one of those people counters they use when large groups. I could. Go. I could. I could do like like a Little League umpire, just sit there and tick it off every time. So what do you guys think of the soundtrack? The soundtrack is kind of acclaimed. People really like the soundtrack to this movie. What do you guys think of it? It's got its own vibe. You know, it, it does yeah. its job in every scene it's in. It doesn't really jump out at you and like grab you in a lot of ways. One of the things that also makes me laugh every time I see it is when he's like in the car coming back from Malibu and he's talking to the taxi driver. He's like, no, man, change the channel. I hate the Eagles. I was going to say could use some more Eagles, but (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. There was a funny anecdote because they wanted to get a song that had been performed by the Rolling Stones and their former manager owned the song and he wanted $150,000 for the rights to use the song. So they let him screen the movie and he's watching it. And when it gets to the part where the dude says, I blanking hate the Eagles. He, the guy was like, forget it. This is a great movie. You guys can have the song for free. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he enjoyed the, the busting on the Eagles so much. That must have been a rivalry, right? The Eagles and the Rolling Stones, like in the 70s. I mean, a bit of a rivalry. They they definitely had different Venn diagrams crossing. But. Yeah, I, I can't say I love the Eagles. I don't hate them. I, it seems like a weird band to have a strong opinion about either way, in my opinion. It's just kind of like, eh, you know, whatever, the Eagles. You know, I mean, Hotel California is such a classic that, like, yeah. it's a classic song. Absolutely. But um, in general, you know, peaceful, easy feeling. Are you getting excited about that either way? Like, that's offensive or good. I don't, it's just kind of. Eagles are kind of a chill band, and if you like them, you like them, you know? It's sort of like um, in the Barbie movie when the, 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 she was uh, getting so upset about having to listen to Matchbox 20, and I was like, it's about the same level for me. It's like, I can't see going out and buying a bunch of Matchbox 20 albums, and I can't see freaking out when you hear them either. It's just kind of, it would be all for, for our younger listeners, you can now hear Matchbox 20 on the oldies station. I'm sure you can. Do they have an, an oldie station yet for the first decade of the tw- 2000s? And have we agreed what that would be called? Uh, they don't. The oldie station, I think, just runs stuff from the 90s now. Well, they don't call it oldies, though. No, it's classic rock. Yeah, they, the classic rock will have some stuff from the 90s. They, they definitely started getting some grunge into the uh, into the play on classic rock now. That, that doesn't seem weird. But... When I first started hearing GNR on classic rock, I was like, Really? Okay, I guess that means I'm getting old. Because oldies to me is like is like a canon of stuff from the 50s and 60s. Like it doesn't matter how old it is; it's like a certain time period to me. Anyway, I don't know. And and I would think classic rock would be similar. It would be late 60s into maybe like 1983, and anything after that is kind of it wouldn't be classic rock; it'd be something else. But anyway, so Bunny, hold on, let me go. Let me go to the cash machine. Yeah, that's a good line. Yeah, let me just go find a cash machine. I like that. You know, she, uh, we don't really know what's happening with her, right? No, it's I mean, we have We get our idea of what's going on, and we have the, the German nihilists who are demanding money, and we have, you know, the real, the, the, the big Lebowski who's like, you, you stole my money. And Maude, who's like, no, you stole the foundation's money. So, a bit of a plot hole. 
the whole thing is that Bunny has not been kidnapped at all. She's gone off on a bender somewhere. Yeah, she she like went to Vegas or Palm Springs or or she went somewhere oh, like with some friends. What was it? So, so I, I think it was Palm Springs. Yeah, yeah. Palm Springs, sounds right. so. so the nihilists have completely concocted the kidnapping plot and cut off the toe of one of their own friends. What, a friend, <laughs> which we see, which we see them getting pancake. But how did they? How did they know she was going to disappear for a couple of days to have made the plot even remotely feasible? Well, Dieter knows her. The the late lead for the nihilist was in a movie with her, which explains and, the green, which explains the green nail polish. Because I was like, if she if she didn't really go anywhere, how did they know what nail polish she was wearing? She, if she wasn't involved in any way, so maybe she was involved. Maybe we're supposed to think she was involved. My guess is that Dieter knew her shooting schedule because she was going to Palm Springs to make some extra money uh-huh. and tried to take advantage of, and knew that she wouldn't tell her husband she was doing that. So tried to take advantage of that opportunity to get some cash out of them. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, it's it's not a huge plot hole. It's not one you can drive a truck through. Speaking of large vehicles, did you know that the dude's car was originally supposed to be a Chrysler LeBaron, but John Goodman couldn't fit into it? So that's why they got the car that they did for the movie. Which makes perfect sense. And by yeah. the way, I, I watched this I watched this interview and I was actually watching it in between our reels here. He's like really thin now. He looks pretty normal. He doesn't even look he doesn't even look like one of those people that lost a dramatic amount of weight and then doesn't look good. He looks fine. I mean, he looks older, but he is yeah. older. He's got he lost be, a tremendous amount of weight. Lost a tremendous amount of weight and it, it, it looks pretty good on him. I was I was impressed. It was a pretty it was a pretty funny interview. They they were talking about how people like to watch the movie over and over again because it's so detailed and there's always things that you see and, and Jeff Bridges is just like, Yeah, new shit keeps coming to light, man. Like, <laughs> I was like, oh, that's pretty good. That's well done. Yeah, uh, one of those things I wondered was you remember the scene where he gets inspected by Maud's doctor? Yeah. Yeah. And then the next scene, he's in a really good mood. I was wondering if he took some medication. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That was weird. But then I and actually I thought I was just like, well, wait, what happened with that? What what is what the hell what was going on with? It? But then later it's that she's trying yeah. to take him out to, to hopefully conceive a baby with him, which I don't understand why she would choose that guy but well i mean presumably so she can name the baby uh jeffrey lebowski the third i guess so yeah yeah that makes sense that's like I mean, why else would you pick that guy there's no reason no i don't know it's really bizarre yeah i had forgotten a lot about this movie in watching it again there were there were whole scenes that i was i just was like oh that happened in this movie yeah it's very strange there's there's a lot there's a lot of different scenes there's a lot of different sequences that happen bunny like plows her car into the fence. I didn't remember that at all. I didn't remember the what happened with the end of that at all. And then she's like out running around in the, the background uh-huh. and the dude yeah. comes in and confronts Big Lebowski right. about Bunny and then we see Bunny in the background like running around naked. There's a part where the dude is coming up with his convoluted theory of what happened in the whole kidnapping plot and he's describing it to Walter and they show they show uh, the big Lebowski filling out a paper and thinking, and there's like thunder going in the background. And then he looks up in the air like, huh? And he's like, well, why is there a giant thunderstorm in LA? Like, what, what, what is this? Like, because it's like part of his imagination. I thought that was pretty, that, that made me laugh all of a sudden when I saw that. There's a lot of little things like that. There are. Uh, one of the trivia things that I really enjoy is that apparently uh, Jeff Bridges' own wardrobe was raided to use the uh, wardrobe for the dude. 
Yeah. Most of what he's wearing is he wore it offset. Like when he went home at the end of the day, he stayed dressed as the dude. I thought that was pretty funny. And he still has those sandals that he was wearing in the movie. They're from his closet. He had them before the movie. Does the dude just the way he looks, does he remind you of anybody you know, guys? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Our good friend Kevin Doyle. He looks exactly like him. He's got the <laughs> some of dice. some of the mannerisms are very similar. There's one scene where I'm like, that is Kevin right there, and it's the scene when he gets kind of like pulled off the street into the car with the big Lewowski and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and he spends about a minute doing the whole. No man, what, what what I'm what I'm what I'm trying to do, man, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very. Funny. I thought it was when he was in the Big Lebowski's office. It's like, listen, man, like, but like, man, man, you got like, what I'm saying, man. At first, I think, oh, this is just inside baseball. Nobody cares about you. But Kevin's been on the show. He was on the Hobbit episode, which is yes, actually one of our one of our most popular episodes. What do you think? You think who's a more memorable character? When you actually watch the movie, obviously, when I'm not watching the movie, the dude is who I remember. But watch well, the movie. Walter is a better character. Walter's hilarious. Yeah, really Walter is the guy character. that starts everything. Well, he's, he's the, the guy, guy that drives the whole movie. He's the one that drives the plot into the insane places that it ends up going. And I just, I, I was watching. I was just like, he's really John Goodman. Almost steals the show. Not quite, because Jeff Jeff Bridges is really good in this too. Yeah, but. They're they're going round to round like like you know Ali and Frazier like in terms of who's stealing the show in this movie. Apparently, in the original script, there is a line that the dude has, and he tells Walter, "You weren't even in Vietnam." Oh, really? Which oh, wow. really would change the interpretation of the movie quite a yeah, bit. That would it, that seems right for the character, by the way, to have not actually been in Vietnam. That does because the whole thing where a he's a little like, young for that, right? No, they're they're all the right age. They're all they're all like my dad's age. We're born in like 47, 48, 49. They're 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 Vietnam age. That's about right. Forty years old in nineteen ninety-one. I remember thinking when I saw this, this movie came out in ninety-eight, but takes place in nineteen ninety-one. And I I think it was the first time I'd ever seen somebody set a film so close in time to when it came out, like just barely far enough back that you had to think about the differences a little bit. You make a movie that takes place in the 70s, you know the things you have to change. You have to change a whole bunch of stuff. When you make a yeah. movie that's like seven years old, it's kind of awkward. It's like, wait, what? Did we have this thing or not? Like, what? how different was it in 1991 from 1998? Like, you and I could sit here and have a conversation about it. 1998, a lot of people have cell phones. 1991, nobody has a cell phone. But they're not really ubiquitous in 1998 yet. They exist. He has they, the big. They, he has the big. They exist. they exist, but it's something yeah. a rich person would have, right? It's not normal. People do not have cell phones in 1991. Like you might have a car phone. There were car phones in 1991 for rich people. I never saw a car phone, phone or used. There a were car pagers. Phone. There were pagers, but I don't think a lot of people had pagers until the mid to late 90s. I, I, I don't. They, they totally. My mom had a. It's kind of funny. We don't see a pager in this movie. We, we do. do. We do. We, we do. do. Oh, really? yeah. yeah. The dude gets one. The dude gets a, a beeper. Oh, yeah, right. They, they, give, they it give it to him. Beeper. Which yeah. is not, I guess, which is not a pager. That's different. A beeper is I've got a thing that goes off and I know who's calling. There's only one person who calls it. And a pager is remember, you pick it up and you look and there's a digital readout of the phone number. Yeah. So it is different. And I don't think anybody had a pager in 1991. At least nobody I knew. I had a pager for about two years from like 1998 to 2000. 
and it was it was it was a big deal. It was it was a pretty important piece of technology at the time, but it got phased out very quickly. I I did have one in like ninety two ninety three. A pager. Yeah. Oh, okay. Were you uh, doing any kind of business or commercial work that required such a thing? Because that's what I associate with people having pagers in 1993. Not, not I, so much. I can't admit or I didn't either yeah. Okay. yeah, it was the favorite tool for legitimate businessmen. Yes, right. yes, it was. It was a legitimate Italian businessman. Yeah. My yeah. mom got it for me so she could keep track of me, and I. That's and absolutely that's enough. I, and that's and that's all I used it for. That's good. Yeah, I don't think I ever had a pager or a beeper. Yeah, I had one when we lived at Random House, actually. And then I went to meet, I can't remember if I got rid of the pager or what happened. Yeah, I got rid of the pager. Uh, I got locked out of my friend's house in New York and couldn't get home. And all the payphones had been ripped out because Giuliani had decided that only drug dealers use payphones. So there were no payphones anywhere in New York. And I was just wandering around the streets until the next day when I finally found my friend. And that's when I was like, I'm getting a cell phone. This is ridiculous. So what do you guys think the message of the end of the movie is when when the dude comes down, sits at the bar, and the narrator comes over and they have their little discussion? The second time they meet. Yep. Uh, well, I got the impression that they kind of had bumped into each other a few times up before. Like he was sort of a regular up there at the. At the yeah, circle. I wasn't sure about that. I wasn't yeah, sure I if, about that either. Yeah, the stranger is how he's credited. Right. Right, and. You know, Jeff Bridges, of course, that's that's where he uses the, the famous line uh, on Chris's shirt, the dude abides, right? That's what I wanted to talk about when you're asking me, what do I think of that ending sequence? Because the thing is, you know, the dude abides is, a, it's a weird way to use that word, right? To abide something is to put up with something, right? That's the number one, when you look it up in the Oxford Dictionary, that's the first definition. And then there's... An archaic definition, which just means to live somewhere, like the hobbits dwell in hobbiton. It'd be in some old-fashioned way of speaking. And then the middle one is kind of what he's going for there, which is to just persist, you know, to just to just remain, to continue in existence, right? Well, I guess to be fair, he only ever sees him hanging out with Walter, so putting up with, pretty appropriate. It's appropriate, right? The, the multiple meanings are appropriate. Right, because he's putting up with a whole bunch of stuff. That's what the dude does. He's continuing yeah. to just be the same guy he's been since the '60s, and he kind of just keeps going with it, man. He just keep, but he also just keeps living. What is he doing? What is the dude doing? He's just existing. Yeah. So it's like to say the dude abides covers all those different meanings, and I could never quite land on exactly which one they mean by that. And then he says, "What I, what really resonated with me is he says that." You know the dudes out there and doesn't that give you a sort of sense of comfort mm -hmm. I was thinking man i used to it was something about i would go back to northern virginia all the adventures i was on in my whole life and i would always go back and like find some of the people i knew from when i grew up and like my parents and things just doing the same stuff they'd always been doing and i loved that that always made me feel like so grounded like there was somewhere in the world where things weren't changing that much it was like a security blanket you know what I mean? And that's the sense I got from what the stranger says about the dude. It's like, how, how bad could the world be if this guy's just still plugging along? It makes you feel good. And to know that there's another, there's a little Lebowski on the way. I don't know if I'm a big fan of that part of the plot. But that mod was successful? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know if that really has anything to do with literally anything else that happens in the film or... Just kind of thing, the thing I enjoy most about Maud is that she is the she is in charge of the Lebowski Trust, 
-hmm. and that the big Lebowski is actually getting a modest allowance from her. Right. Um, so right. he's just a full, you know, chicken he's hawk tank. Yeah. He's just like a fraudulent, um, you know, magnate, like capitalist, you know, business, businessman. Like none of it's real. Yeah. Total he's, fake. He's giving the dude a hard time about being a bum. I but thought, I thought the big Lebowski had lost his legs. He says that a Chinaman took his legs in Korea. Exactly. He, but then, but he did, they didn't actually take his legs, did they? No, and that, no. and I think that, that was a, a surprise for me. You thought Walter might have been right for the second time in the movie? Yeah. <laughs> What's the times when he's right? Because it's few and far between. Definitely uh, wasn't, it was a wasn't fake gift wrapping the Uzi. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it just shoots all over the place when he drops it on the ground. <laughs> yeah. as, it fall, as they both go flying out the car. That's a really funny physical comedy bit. When that happens, it's it's like the sequence in Pineapple Express when he's like stuck through the window. the window. Oh my god, it's just stupid funny, but it's it, it get that gets me. Like that's really funny watching that happen. I had forgotten. I forgot what happened. I was like, I know they screw up the dead drop here, but I can't remember how <laughs> Uzi starts firing all over the place. I was like, oh yeah, that's. So should we talk about biggest surprise? I think we did. Anything surprise you coming back to this movie, Bill? Biggest surprise. Uh, that was that was definitely a big surprise. Was oh, that he's legs. Okay. Legs. The use of white Russian versus Caucasian. I only remember hearing it. I watched it last night. Rem only remembered one he time. Says Caucasian every time? Yeah. No, only heard him say Caucasian one time. I think he says it twice if I remember right. But yeah, it's not it's not persistent he, throughout the movie. He says white Russian more. Yes. And that yeah. I think that was a big that was a a bigger surprise to me. Uh, but he's getting thrown into the limo and he's like, hey man, there's a beverage here. <laughs> <laughs> which is in a, like a highball glass, which he obviously stole from Bods and just walked yeah. out with. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Chris, did you have any big surprises? I, I guess every time I come back to this movie after a while, I'm I'm always struck at just how funny it is. Just yeah. there are five or six or seven laugh out loud funny moments in this movie. And some of them I, I remember coming, and some of them take me by surprise sometimes. And it, like the part where he he builds the uh, the the stop so his door can't be opened. Yeah, <laughs> and they just open it from the other side, and yeah. he builds it, it opens outward, door. doesn't it? He just forgets yeah. that the door opens outward. Yeah, that's, that's so a, great. I like little bits like that. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I'm a big fan of just some of the lines, just hearing them said over and over again. You know, like what I like how the Coen Brothers do this a lot. But she keeps talking about the doctor and he says, he's a good man and thorough. And she says it like four times. I'm like, what, what a weird thing to say. But I just, it, it resonates, it, it rings how, in the ear afterwards. Yeah. How was he being thorough? Getting back he's, to, you, we was, started talking about this a little bit earlier, Ed. And it was like, yeah. the doctor, <laughs> like she sends him to the doctor and how happy he was afterwards. It was like, what exactly yeah, did happen there? I don't know. And we don't. I, I don't know what happened there, but I I mean she had to be checking the doctor had to be checking to make sure that he was a viable candidate, right? You get a sample and you make sure that the, the fish are swimming in the sea. He didn't think to ask what was going on that secretly. Anyway. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. I mean to do the bias. That's stretching my my credulity a little bit, but yeah, so uh, my surprises, I mean, there was a lot of stuff I didn't remember about watching this movie, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip that. Some of the surprises I had was the stuff behind the scenes uh, that I read about, that apparently the Coen brothers 
based the dude on a producer they knew who called himself the dude. And there's actually multiple different people. There's one guy who had been in the Seattle seven. And that's, I think he gets quoted as having been in the Seattle seven at some point. They had another friend that they knew or another producer that they knew who had a terrible crummy little apartment. And he would always talk about how proud he was of the rug that tied the whole place together. Like it surprised me that that's like a real person. And then also that Walter is based on John Milius, the director of Red Dawn. Oh wow! Oh wow! Totally makes sense to me. As soon as I heard it, I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, definitely." That that makes perfect sense. So all those things surprised me a lot. Also, in watching the interview, Jeff Bridges is like, "Hey, uh, did you guys hear that uh, John Turturro? He's working on a on a, he got the rights to doing a whole movie about the Jesus character. Did he ever finish that?" And John Goodman's like. Yeah, yeah, he finished that. And he's like, did, did any of you see it? Did anybody see it? And everybody's just, nope. <laughs> I'm like, he didn't call you guys to go to the premiere? You guys are friends? Like, what? that's cold. Like, Apparently the uh, the ashes thing where they dump the ashes out and it comes back and hits them in the face is a real thing that happened to a friend of Mel Brooks. Oh, it could definitely happen. I've done an ash spreading ceremony and uh, it's... It's part of the game. You're getting hit with ashes if you're outdoors. It's, it's There's no clean. There's a lot of ashes in a human body. There's a lot. When you dump them, it goes all over the place. There's there's no getting away from it without being covered with some of granddad's ashes. I, I can tell you that from experience. I, we, we dumped my, well, I don't know if I should admit this because it's not technically, it wasn't technically kosher, but we, we dumped my granddad's ashes off of a cliff in the town where he grew up, like a really pretty like outcropping of rock in the middle of this town. It was pretty, it was a pretty cool spot to do it, but we definitely, my dad definitely got hit with some of the ashes when he was letting them go. So I could see that happening. It was not just legal. It was extra legal. It was, no, I think it was illegal. <laughs> I don't think it was extra or legal. I think it was just illegal, but because we definitely, my dad definitely hopped over a fence in order to get the job done. So you know, they say people do that on the Haunted Mansion ride all the time. Like, it happens once or twice a year. They just have to shut the whole Haunted Mansion ride down to get people's ashes. It's mostly how tacky that is that, that is offensive to me. Not the ashes, it's the tackiness. Why that? Why the Haunted Mansion? That's weird. But. It is especially triggering to me because I have a very vivid memory of having the Haunted Mansion ride shut down. Oh, yeah. Same as... As we were going at, at the end where the, the monologue is given at the end. <laughs> and so we're stuck there listening to the monologue over yep. and over and over yep. again. Yep. And the way they get people off the ride is they come down and they start at the beginning and they have to use a key to get you out because you can't just get out yourself. They have to open it. So, yeah, we were stuck there listening to that monologue over and over and over for what in subjective little kid time felt like a day. Yeah, I got stuck on that ride at the part where you're going straight up. And so we were just oh. like suspended backwards. And, but at least it was the part with all the music. It's that big room where there's lots of ghosts. And, there's, and that was not too bad. That's pretty entertaining. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty entertaining. We need to talk about whether or not we're going to toast this purported classic. And we have three people. So this is a legitimate vote. And I have no idea who picked it. So why don't we go in alphabetical order and start with Bill? You know, I have to say, in most alphabetical groupings, Chris and I would have a chance. Of being first most of the time i probably would be first almost all the time chris would be bill yeah except for my like friend aaron the only, yeah. only person only person that would beat him is the character aardvark from red dawn what and about then, like elon musk's kid who has just the weirdest <laughs> we're gonna go ahead and have a vote and bill gets to go first give us your thoughts give us your closing statement let us know whether you think we should toast this classic 
Every time I watch this movie, okay. I find myself thinking... Tell me how many times have you seen it? I can't give you a, 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 an exact number. It's, it's Two? I mean, is it... Is it's it it's double or, digits. Like, it's probably like, double digits. Okay, well, that's a respectable amount of time. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I, I realized something different about this film. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of great references. The dude, Jeff Bridges... His character just reminds me not only of our, our good buddy in this crew, our circle. Well, you're from California. You went to school in Humboldt County. I'm sure it reminds hey. you about people who <laughs> went to college, right? I don't, I don't know I don't know what you mean. Uh, Cal Poly Humboldt is a very respectable school. focuses on sciences and engineering. Agriculture, probably. Yeah, there's there's you know, a decent forestry program. Well, so what do you think of this film? You got to vote so, for it? Lots of really good stuff. The Dude Abides. I like. I, I mean, I loved every single character in this film. Does your long-term high opinion of this movie abide? Yeah, I think it does. I think it continues. It, like watching it last night, you know, it it made me laugh throughout. There yeah. were so much. There's just so I'm many gonna, great scenes. I was laughing a lot at Walter. I was getting a big kick out of watching Walter the whole time. It, Jesus is a funny character, but I would not have made a movie about him. If you told me there was a movie about Walter, I would think about watching that. I'd be like, it's probably going to be pretty funny. And I would want it to have other characters in it. The scene with Jesus, that was that was another great one that I had, well, he doesn't had completely forgotten about. Where they're he both like cleaning their bowling balls. The Jesus. <laughs> the Jesus. Yes, they're rubbing the bowling balls. They were talking about, Steve Buscemi was talking about that in the interview. And he was doing that. And he was like, why does that seem so obscene? Like, what what is so dirty about that? Versus the licking of the bowling ball? Is that yeah, more or less? Is that more or less obscene? pretty bad and his partner liam is weird i don't think he speaks with all of that said yes i think i i think i have to vote this as a classic film that you can watch at any point and say that's a great movie favorite coen brothers movie it's right up there in the top probably three okay fargo i mean fargo big lebowski and oh brother where art thou I'm, i think Fargo is probably my favorite, but I, I do like this one. All right. I mean, it might be, it might even be in that order. I don't know. Fargo, Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Why Art Thou? I wouldn't, I wouldn't quibble with that. I'd probably, I think Brothers. You read no Country for Old Men. I haven't seen it again since I saw it in the theater. I loved it in the theater, but I have not seen it again. So I don't know how it would, and it's not as fun to be no, honest. Why I, I haven't watched. I like the serious stuff. So like Miller's Crossing, I think, is top three for me. For I thought Miller's Crossing was good, but did not not something I would watch over and over again. I just, yeah. you know, it's just dark. I just don't really. I don't know. Maybe I'd watch it again and not and not feel that way. There might be something I'm not remembering off the top of my head. Oh, Raising Arizona. I love Raising Arizona. I think I might like Raising Arizona in terms of their funnier ones. I think I like that better than this one. I do really like Raising Arizona, but this one's very good. They're they're similar. They're very similar. But they both have terrific performances from John Goodman, by the way. Really funny performances from John Goodman. Let's see, Miller's Crossing, uh, Miller's Crossing, Fargo, and and this movie, y'all get to see uh, Steve Buscemi die. So there's that. Steve Buscemi and Miller's Crossing. Yeah, long time ago for him to have been. I don't remember that. All right, Chris. All right, Chris, you're up. I'm up, huh? I would say Julianne Moore is probably the only character I don't really like in this movie. She seems a little yeah. too one note to me. I get the whole cold feminist thing, but 
do more with that. It, it she just, was only on set for like two days. She was in the middle of filming Jurassic Park, I think, and just didn't contribute. Just didn't spend a lot of time on the movie. But she had an awful lot of screen time for someone that was only. She on did. The she did. She, she, she has a handful of scenes. So what I really, really like about this movie is the uh, the bleak, absurd sense of humor that it has. There are very few movies that have one iconic character that you walk out really impressed by and i think this movie has two i think it's walter and it's the dude because those two are a heck of a pair one of my favorite books of all time is probably catch 22 which excels in the bleak absurdist humor we did a um, show on that book i yeah i remember <laughs> what is that what does that mean did we do a bad job with this no it's just i I, w- I wish I could have jumped in and said a few things. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it's always like that when, when you listen to a show you're not on, you're like, right. yeah, I, I want to, you know, interject. So yeah, overall, I would say I, I really like this movie. I definitely think it's a classic. It's something that every time I watch it, I, I walk away with a, a different appreciation for it. And so, yes, I, I would absolutely call this a classic movie. Okay. So then my opinion doesn't really matter, but just for academic interest, I would say, like I said, I, it's maybe not my absolute favorite Coen Brothers movie, but they are some of my favorite directors ever. I really, really enjoy their movies. So saying that is not saying I don't like the movie. I do like this movie. And I would recommend it to somebody who wanted to know about the Coen Brothers almost more for the reputation the movie has and how much I know other people have enjoyed the movie. So I definitely would vote for this. I think this one's a classic. I think it's great for drinking a White Russian, too. It's one of the most on-the-nose drink choices we've had for a film. Because it's definitely, there's a drink throughout the whole movie. So yeah, I'm voting for it. I think it's a good movie. And I say it's classic. And uh, I think we'll be done for the week. This is uh, Dave MacArthur signing off. This has been Chris Gregg. And Bill Hodges. And I wish you guys all a good week. Peace out. Talk to you later. That's it for episode 85 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, you'll need scotch and drambouille, as we'll be drinking rusty nails for our discussion of Jack Kerouac's On the Road. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know if there is anyone out there who saw John Turturro's Jesus movie. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics.